In this episode of STEMiverse, Marcus and I talk with Philip Mallon. Started at the age of nine, Philip built a radio crystal set and this became the foundation for an interest in electronics. Philip's path has given him countless opportunities to learn and to teach during the last 40 years. As a cadet with the New South Wales Department of Public Works, he studied science and technology at the University of Sydney. This was followed by further studies in the UK and a master's degree in engineering science at the University of New South Wales. Philip applied his new knowledge in biomedical engineering to providing electromedical equipment for the new Westmead Hospital. He worked on the first electronic toll system for the Sydney Harbour Bridge and was a control systems engineer on the accelerated loading facility. Philip helped provide the first computer systems engineering labs at UTS, the University of Technology Sydney, and was employed there as both engineering manager and as an academic to provide both teaching and practical engineering skills for students. While at UTS, Philip was a director for Autism Australia, now called ASPECT, and took an interest in supporting schools for autistic children. At the RTA, the Road and Traffics Authority in New South Wales, Philip was engaged in intelligent transport systems project, including the flashing lights at all school zones in New South Wales, road safety projects, including the Lithgow Black Ice Detection Project, managed motorways, the new T-Way bus systems for Sydney, and structural health and security monitoring projects, including monitoring the Sydney Harbour Bridge for security threats. Now retired, Philip is an active maker and mentor to other makers at the University of the Third Age and various Sydney meetups including Osbury, Sydney Robotics and Coding and Hack Sounds. Philip's maker projects involve music, robotics, home automation, environmental monitoring, software engineering and electronics, and his interest in how people with disabilities such as autism and retired seniors can be creative as makers. Philip exhibited his maker projects at the Sydney Mini Maker Fair last year. He's an alpha tester for new seed products, including ReSpeaker, and won two of their design competitions using ReSpeaker and Wirelink. In the next hour or so, Marcus and I explore Philip's amazing engineering and learning experiences, and it was fascinating. This is Stemiverse episode 10. Welcome to STEMiverse, the podcast that helps educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. I'm Peter Dalmaris, and with my co-host Marcus Sharpie, our mission is to bring you the experiences of educators, students and stakeholders who strive every day to make the teaching and learning of science, technology, engineering, mathematics and art better. Philip, thank you for joining us in this episode of STEMiverse. Really appreciated having the opportunity to talk to you. I'm here with Marcus, and we'd like to explore your educational background, especially in relation to STEM. Thanks for the invite. 
we planned this a while ago. So um, I'm very excited because uh, uh, we actually got back a while at UTS, even though back then, that's about 20 years ago, we didn't know about it. <laughs> it's like our paths crossed again uh, all this time later. So uh, I'd like to ask, uh, I'd like to start this interview by asking you to tell us a little bit about your background. So going back as, as far as you feel comfortable, tell us about perhaps when you became, remember yourself becoming interested in engineering, mm -hmm. in science, in education, and uh, tell, us a, tell us about your story, how you got to where you are now. Sure, certainly. Uh, my first project, maker's project, was when I was nine years old. And I did that with my dad and built a crystal set. So a radio crystal set was the thing you started off with in those days. Mm -hmm. And my father, he was selected because he had really excellent hearing and he was selected um, to become a um, detecting submarines mm -hmm. in the Second World War. So they trained him to be a technician. He didn't have any background in that area and he became interested in electricity and the British Navy taught him how to maintain all the gear so that he had to repair it. Right. So not only detect submarines, but he also had to um, keep them going, yeah. keep that technology going. And they gave him quite a thorough grounding. So he kept that interest uh, alive. So it was Second World War, right? And this was the Second yeah. World War. Yeah. So someone who, he was an upholsterer before that. Right. Uh, but he, <laughs> so I sort of look at my origins of um, my interest, probably goes back to that. So it's called the necessity. The wartime needs yes. got your father into this completely new thing for him, totally from being an upholsterer to now being a, somebody detecting submarines from sound and maintaining electronic equipment That's in right. a submarine. Yes. Right. So he needed to know the, back, the, the, the first principles and uh, he would have his own gear to repair, mm -hmm. but he then made things and involved me in that process when I was the age of nine or so. So while we migrated to Australia, we didn't actually do much until I was about that age. Before mm -hmm. then, we mm -hmm. saved up for a house. Yeah. And that we didn't have much money for um, hobbies. But um, around about that stage, we started making things. Uh, when I was, a couple of years later, he gave me a kit. So there was a, uh, a model railway system called Train Trains. Mm -hmm. They brought out the equivalent, an electronics equivalent uh, that allowed you to play with printed circuit boards, mm. okay. transistors, and I was able to actually uh, put together radio receivers, superheterodyne receivers, and mm. things like that at about the age of 12 or so. So it's about in, in the 60s now, that'd be around yeah, early 60s? 1962 yeah. or so. Did uh, you have brothers or sisters? Yeah, I have got one brother and one sister. They're not interested. Not interested. They're, they're interested. totally <laughs> medical. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And um, I became interested in medicine too, and I didn't really know for a career, would I go for medicine or would I go for engineering? Mm. And I eventually combined the two of them. So I did biomedical engineering, right. which <laughs> in choose. my master's course, I um, specialised as much as possible in that area. So my so early career was biomedical engineering. So you come to Australia, you build gadgets like that with your father. Yeah. Um, and then you, you go through a normal school process and then at some point you have to choose what you want to do That's with right. the rest of your life and you had these two options. You could go towards uh, the medical or the engineering option and you decided to combine them. 
what was that back then? Because it must have been early days for such a discipline like a biomedical engineering. Yeah, it was brand new, and I just happened to be the right person mm -hmm. in the right place. So um, just starting university, I chose engineering mm -hmm. because the state government had state scholarships. Which university? Uh, Sydney University. Yep. And the state scholarship gave you a full-time salary when you attended university. So um, wow. if I did medicine, if I did medicine, <laughs> I would have to pay for everything. But uh, with the state scholarship, uh, they gave you employment and guaranteed work um, as soon as you graduated for five yeah. years. Was it specifically for engineers? Yeah. They didn't have that same policy in any other discipline? No, no, they, they had um, the government architect uh, employed architects and they would have um, surveyors. So uh, the state government had a lot of um, technical uh, experts, yep. probably less today, but in those days they did everything themselves. Mm -hmm. okay, no outsourcing to the private sector back then, right? So they, yeah, yes, the so government would hire these people directly to build roads, bridges, whatever. That's right, yeah. So they were government employees. And if you could remain a government employee for life, you could retire quite well. Yes. Mm. Yeah, good superannuation and all that. But it's all changed now, it's totally That's changed. Right. Uh, it's quite interesting that the, the scholarships that you get, basically you were an employee employed to study engineering uh, back in the 60s yes. and how different that is now. <laughs> it was totally different. When I went to university, we were the first students to use mini computers, mm. which would actually um, boot up the computer. So we had total control. The previous generation actually just looked at computers behind a glass wall. So they didn't even get time sharing? They never actually... Um, Got, got their hands on. Mm -hmm. So they put their cards in. We used to have decks of cards. Yeah, yeah. Whereas we, we were actually bootstrapping it with paper tape and then using the computer to control. And when I uh, got out of university and started my first job, they were beginning to use these mini computers, not just in banks, but they were beginning to use them in hospitals mm -hmm. uh, and all over the place. And nobody had in the government knew anything mm. about it. Mm. But I was lucky enough yeah. that I had some experience that I could actually t tackle the first jobs in that area. So tell us about having computers like that just first appearing, and obviously there's a big expensive things, you need a building for them. Um, as a student, what was your relation with those machines and how were they used in this educational process back then? Were professors, interested in using them as a teaching tool or was it just part of the job? And like, yeah, they were the first computers which were a component in a discipline of control engineering. So prior to that, control engineering was all about analog computers mm -hmm. and feedback, uh, PID, algorithms mm -hmm. and all that sort of thing. And all of a sudden we had affordable computers which could be part of the control system and uh, that's how I got involved. I, I, uh, in my undergrad, I specialised in control systems engineering. And prior to that, I did a uh, degree in science. And that was also good because I, I actually got um, some hands-on in the physics laboratories mm -hmm. uh, right through the whole program at Sydney Uni. So I started off with a Bachelor of Science and then went on to um, complete with a Bachelor of Engineering uh, at Sydney Uni. Mm -hmm. But what was really good was every single holiday, I was able to get out and starting off in a workshop, hands-on and doing stuff. Then uh, installing things like air conditioners in hospitals, 
then working through testing things like um, the safety systems in hospitals. Uh, so I did all that as an undergrad for five mm, years. Mm. So it was a, a quite a good uh, did background. Have, did you have some kind of mentorship as you're going through all that by yep. yourself? So tell us a little bit about that experience, well, like your mentors. Yeah, uh, you had a, I had a pretty free reign while I was at uni. Mm. So I was just like everyone else. But as um, soon as the exams finished, you went straight back into the government uh, with full salary and you were able to um, uh, to get like a six-week apprenticeship in different sections in the government. It's amazing. Do they do this anymore? No, they don't do it anymore. Okay. But it did encourage me to think about that. And when I, uh, just recently, when I, before retirement, I was involved in a grad program for the RTA, mm -hmm. which um, selected and then looked at um, how graduates in computer systems and electrical engineering could go through and uh, get similar experiences, mm -hmm. in a, perhaps in a different way. Uh, they were graduates now, not undergraduates, yep. but I was quite interested in that process of uh, learning and the process of uh, combining my different interests for the next generation of engineers. So you get through, you do, you finally graduate? Yeah, uh, I graduated, but um, I still wanted to have a continuous involvement in education. Mm -hmm. So I worked for the government architect yep. and um, involved in equipping hospitals, that, that was the main thing. Uh, selecting x-ray equipment mm. and testing that. I tended to um, get towards the more complicated. The first thing I had to do was work out the safety systems in intensive care wards where pe and people that had open heart surgery, uh, they're quite vulnerable to uh, micro amps of current. Oh. So I had to try and work out the earthing systems. Mm -hmm. They just introduced a brand new Australian standard, and that had to be then implemented in uh, cardiovascular laboratories, uh, laboratories where people were having open heart surgery. So that, so that was quite quite interesting. Is that inside the medical theatre specifically, or even in the ward? Uh, it's not in the ward, it's where they actually cut oh. open the heart and insert uh, electrodes and probes so you no longer have the skin to protect you. Yep. Yep. So it means microamps of current, if there's any leakage current from a, an instrument, mm -hmm. could actually cause a condition in the heart called fibrillation. Yep. And it didn't take much for that to happen. So there were things like cauterizing equipment, that kind of thing? Or? Yeah, it was mainly equipment that uh, looked at um, ECG uh, e yep. or the electrocardiogram. Mm -hmm. So it was equipment and a patient could actually be connected to quite a number of instruments. Mm -hmm. So it didn't take long before you got leakage mm -hmm. currents. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had to um, either go for a complete earthing system as the British did, or go for a completely floating system mm -hmm. with isolating transformers, but monitoring the leakage current on either side. And we went for that solution. Why? Because if you, um, you could have two dangers, if you had any leakage current, you then uh, fell back to like an earth condition. Mm -hmm. If you had a um, the other system, a complete earth system, your circuit breakers would, uh, and they now call them residual no, current yeah. devices. Yeah. Current <laughs> devices. Yeah. yeah, the RCDs. Yeah. If you only had an RCD solution, you would interrupt the um, the operation. Mm. And uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, no good. <laughs> that's not good. You've got all this effort to generators and backups. So that's you right. Have the power. Yes. But it, we gave the surgeon a choice. 
they knew that there was a danger, but they could still continue. And, okay. Yeah, so there was um, some monitoring going on, feedback, and they knew the risks involved uh, in uh, using electricity yes. in, um, in that environment. I wonder, Phil, what all these things that you were doing back at that time, they don't sound things that are mainstream, that, that there's a lot of people doing. So you're one of those people that has to figure out how to, how to do a, how to ground an operating theater so that the patient is safe from those micro amps. If there's no other people to ask advice, how do you go about figuring out what's the right thing to do? And remember that there was no internet back then either. You couldn't Google these things, right? Yep. So did you have some kind of process that would help you get through and answer a lot of these questions that you had as you Well, maybe in interacting with other experts. So the people that I, who knew more about it than me were the anaesthetists in the hospitals. Uh -huh. And there was one particular anaesthetist who knew everything about engineering. So I learned so an engineering anesthetist. He used to take a screwdriver into the operating theatre, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. if there's something wrong, he could actually fix on the fly. On the fly, just leave a patient and inter own, fix a machine, <laughs> right, to save the patient. And he actually became so he was like a mentor. He knew quite a lot about medicine and and a lot about engineering. He eventually became CEO of Teletronics. Mm. So you all the pacemakers and things like that, he was involved in exporting those to the world. Uh, but, so people uh, were your source of knowledge directly, right? And you call them your mentors. There was yep. no Google. Pretty much books had not been written specifically on those topics. Yep. So you had to ask the right questions yep. to people that you expected to have the knowledge. How far do you think that this same approach can be applied today? Uh, it seems to me that people would go to Google first and then ask people uh, a question unless they can find the answer on Google. Do you think that Google has replaced the mentors? <laughs> I think engineering had a problem with being over-specialised and in some ways working with a team of other experts of mechanical architects, doctors, as a team you worked out the problem together and the solution together. Part of that problem was that you tended to only learn a little narrow discipline so uh, you relied on others and communicating them mm. verbally. You had to go and talk to them and understand what their problems were. Yeah. I also think that these are high stake situations that you're describing now. So operating theatres and wards, um, they're not things to be getting around with. So suppose that that environment of being free to talk to others, explore problems from different dimensions, ask people, of different disciplines like the initiatives for example of yep. their opinion that that would be a way to reduce risk and and get to a an answer that is a correct answer right yeah yeah I, I think i had a lucky break in working for the project manager of the opera house his next project was westmead hospital and i he gave me 10 percent of his budget mm. so this was the first time new south wales in the last century had ever built a teaching hospital and there was a lot of politics involved between the state and the federal government. Mm -hmm. Again, I was there at the right time and the new government said, we're going to spend a lot of money on medicine and we're going to change the balance because all the teaching hospitals and all the health services were in the eastern suburbs. And here there was a sudden explosion 
to try and um, redress that balance in the West. Mm -hmm. So Westmead Hospital uh, was um, from nothing, from a, a speedway, uh, became eventually Australia's largest mm. hospital. Yep. Mm. And um, I was the electro, so it was, I was only about nine months out of, out of uh, uni at this stage, but I became the electromedical consultant. <laughs> uh, again, I couldn't do it on my own. There was really a team of other people yeah. that I, I had to pull up uh, to, to draw on. But it was quite exciting in terms of, well, the technology they were going to put in there, Australia had never done it before. Mm. Like, what were the new technologies? Well, things like linear accelerators for cancer treatment. Mm. We had only things like, until recently, six MEV linear accelerators. So that the size of the microwave tube would be about that. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden we were going to go to 20 MEV and facing problems like if you shot that to the concrete, you could transmute the elements within the concrete right. and Material. cause radioactive. So radioactivity on uh, radio They could concrete. become radioactive. Yeah. And so they were building this hospital uh, and, and they fast tracked the whole thing. And they were putting things like the maternity block right on top of the linear accelerators. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> they had no idea what they were. Yeah. So they, oh, I had to know, well, what was it, a linear accelerator? <laughs> and should we buy technology like CAT scanners that had just been introduced for the first time? Should we buy them now? And they were becoming obsolete very, very quickly. Mm. So what was the best return on the investment for the state? So I got involved in some of those sort of things with doctors all banging on the door, everyone wanting this new technology. The accelerator. Yeah. So in, in that kind of environment, do you think that you developed some sort of technique or philosophy in, first of all, how to learn? Because you really had to learn a lot of diverse topics and fast, right? Yep. And then how to also teach. Yep. Since I think you were, you were the senior consultant, so the, you had to consult people which is something similar to teaching, right? So I'd like you to talk a little bit about those two aspects, um, techniques you developed to mm -hmm. learn quickly and then okay. to, to teach others. And how do you think that eventually followed you into your academic years, uh, a few years later in this story? Two, two things. The first thing I did was to do a master simultaneously when I was doing this. And the University of New South Wales with their uh, masters of engineering science was very flexible. So I could, I could do a combination of things that I, I thought was more appropriate for me. Was it a coursework masters or? A yeah, it was coursework masters. So what I did was everything from ergonomics, because mm -hmm. uh, I was interested in how the design, how human beings interacted with technology. And they had some really good experts mm -hmm. in that, that field. What, uh, what time frame? Uh, what year? Oh, yeah, I dragged it on a bit. <laughs> so I started in 1974. Okay. And I interrupted that um, program and went and did a Confederation of British Industry scholarship for two years. And it also gave me hands-on mm -hmm. where there were real experts. So I was working with EMI, mm -hmm. so the, the profits from the Beatles, mm -hmm. the Beatlemania, yeah. uh, they reinvested that into CT scanning. So EMI, the engineer so the company, in, EMI was a re the record company. EMI right? was a record company. That represented the Beatles, so they're making crazy money out of the Beatles and they're yep. taking that money and using it for research. What's interesting, they were an electronics company and in the war, 
they um, developed a lot of detection using radar technology mm -hmm. and a lot of new electronics uh, for detection. So that expertise gave EMI a grounding in uh, particularly domestic products. So Thorn EMI was, they produced a lot of radios and things like that. That's incredible. I, I just had this thought that the Beatles actually helped science yes. yeah. in, in this indirect way. Yep, they financed. The profits were financed, like some crazy science out there. So what happened, I, I actually worked with an engineer uh, in EMI that got the Nobel Prize in medicine because hmm. he invented the CAT scanner. And he was an EMI employee. And he was an EMI employee. What was sad about EMI is that they didn't really manage their investment very well. A bit like Xerox, right? Yeah, <laughs> within five years, they went bankrupt. Yep. A lot of competition. And what was interesting for me was to try and get a sense of what the environment was. So um, yeah, people like Siemens, General Electric, they were all sort of knocking on our doors saying, well, come and look at what we're doing. Mm. And the development of the technology was very, very rapid. Now, for me, the heart of the technology was a mini computer, mm. the things that I was doing back at uni. And I was able to understand what its limits were. It couldn't do mathematics all that well. So you had to put a coprocessor to do the mm. array processing. Yep. And I understood a little bit about the architecture. And while I worked there, I actually installed CAT scanners so that was a bit exciting. You know, I installed the first whole body CT scanner in Europe, yeah. in Denmark. So it was really good. They, well, they paid me to do it. So this. what year is that? That was 1975. Wow. Yeah. That's the, the dawn of the microcomputer age yeah. as well. With, yeah, uh, the dawn, that's home, right. Home computers. Yeah. And, but it also struck me, they picked the microcomputer I didn't really have a background in. I was trained in what was known as the PDP-11. That's no problem for you, right? <laughs> it was no problem. Well, yeah, in some ways I began to take sides and uh, later on I wanted to rationalise and I tended to back a particular brand of microcomputing. Mm -hmm. While I was doing my Masters, there was a, a, a mentor there, uh, Dr David Mee, and he made all the Masters students, even though that they were working, they were coming to uni at 6.30 at night, they actually had to do wire wrapping and construct a, um, a peripheral board. And that led me on later on to these designs. Hands on, hands he, on knowledge. He picked. Learn by making. <laughs> learn by doing, <laughs> which was totally different from every other course in the, in the master's program. And I was able to, uh, for the first time, I actually learned wire wrapping techniques and played with um, what was known as PIAs, so like parallel interface devices and things like that. Uh, and submit those as part of my, for assessment. Mm -hmm. uh, so that actually made me, it, it jolted me into going to another level because yeah. there were two competing things. One was hands-on, do something so that you can really understand it. And the other one was you go to a, uh, a management role mm. where you tended to only write about the specifications and test them. So you were a bit remote from the process Mm -hmm. And the, the two of them were sort of con yeah. conflicting, if you like, uh, in my mind. Where would I go? Was it either that management approach or could I get my hands on and do something? So the, the, um, did you see a conflict between that hands-off management approach and the hands-on, more like 
applied approach? Was there a conflict between the two or they were just two separate things that coexisted and collaborated with each other and just couldn't decide which one to go for? Well, I enjoyed beginning to make stuff. Yeah. So, um, and it also happened at, while I was an undergraduate, they tended to use a lot of obsolete equipment. Mm-hmm. So the quality mm-hmm. of labs at Sydney Uni were uh, sometimes very, very good, but most of the time they were pretty bad. Mm. That was the thing that I was shocked leaving school. The quality of the labs at school were far better than the labs that we had <laughs> yeah. at the university. Well, they didn't maintain them. So um, we were doing things like phase lock loops using valve, mainly equipment that was um, using valve technology, mm-hmm. and none of it was calibrated. Mm. And um, right at the, exactly at the same time, they were beginning to introduce little circuits on integrated circuits, the triple five timer mm-hmm. and the five five six phase lock loop. Yep. Now I was the first one in the class to actually go and buy those from Babylon Electronics <laughs> from the Silicon Valley and do all all the lab experiments at home. So I had a source your own equipment, right? So I started well, well I was yeah, <laughs> uh, as a full time paid yeah. uh, undergrad. I reinvested some of that money back into electronics and developed the lab, which was better than what we had at uni. So you really believe that the, you need to have the right tools yeah. as part of learning, yeah. right? That's right. Especially yep. in technology. Yep. Yeah, the fundamentals are the signal generator called a yeah. mini lab, yep. mm-hmm. and the other one was an oscilloscope, and uh, I was a soldering iron, all those sort of things. And um, with a bit of hands-on, I could still, still continue a little bit of that all the way through. So uh, at that point, you're still a student, aren't you? Yeah, I was still a student when I was doing, doing that. Uh, it became a bit difficult as a maker to, uh, to do that while I was doing the Masters and doing these other um, full-time. Just busy time in life. Yeah. It's quite, cause I also looked after things like the Nuclear Medi- Medicine Program for New South Wales. And what that is, nuclear medicine, I don't know if you've ever <laughs> yeah. if you've heard of it, yeah. but um, I had to commission gamma cameras, and then select the first microcomputers in state hospitals. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was quite interesting. So these, but, are, these are scanners that uh, you can use in order to inspect uh, internal structures in the body, like the, the brain, would that be a good candidate for more than, a scanner? More than just structures, they're actually, um, uh, biochemical structures. So right. while you look at an ordinary X-ray, you just get a, a, a bone Steel, structure. Right. This is actually able to uh, trace through the biochemical reactions. So you can see the, the tissues there, but you can also see the blood flowing yeah, through. Yeah, you, the, you can see the blood, but you can also see the, um, say, the biochemistry Chemicals. of the the liver. Right. So they could actually have um, radio pharmaceuticals which would be tagged for certain parts oh, of the body. Right. And then you could photograph those so processes. To do that, you need a computer to analyze the signal that you're getting from the scanner. And that's, right. that's one of the things that you had to learn and yep. do as well. Select the first ones. Yep. And it goes back to, well, if I could rationalize on the computer system, and it was all stuff that was more intuition rather than policy. Mm-hmm. So I selected the same computer system for all the teaching mm. hospitals right mm. throughout New South Wales. I'm surprised that the computing systems are so decoupled from the scanners. The, you walk I, into a hospital today and it's a branded PC running some god ancient version of Windows XP that's controlling you know, some very expensive equipment. And it seems to be built, you know, embedded into the equipment. Those, Back then it was separate. 
It was all separate. Okay. Uh, so I guess it was a, a bit of luck because the hospitals wanted to collaborate on research. And if they could write software, then other hospitals could use that software yeah, too. Right. So they didn't have the software yeah. to run on it, yet they had to make it themselves. They had packages. So there was a company called um, Digital Equipment Corporation. Mm -hmm. DEC. DEC, yeah. uh, so they actually had a package called the Gamma 11. And uh, that did most of what they wanted, but not enough for a teaching mm -hmm. hospital. Mm -hmm. They did research on top of that. What were these machines running? Unix? Operating oh, system. Uh, there was a, well, they ran, uh, ran a real-time operating system called RT11. Okay. And uh, it had to be real-time because these signals were coming in, you had mm -hmm. to process them. And they had a little mini version called the LSI11 eventually, and it went into um, ultrasonic scanners. Mm -hmm. So besides nuclear medicine, it also went into um, another new field called uh, that looked at um, ultrasonic imaging. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'd like to fast forward now to when you are actually doing the teaching. Because <laughs> right. so far you've been doing like an amazing amount of learning really right. quickly, diverse field and technology and medicine and all these other things, and also diverse backgrounds. So you went government, you went to like uh, still government, but in hospitals. And uh, so you've got a very big collection of, um, of experiences. Now you become uh, interested in academia and you become um, an academic at some mm -hmm. point in life. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and then how did you use all that experience in your, in your own teaching style? Tell us maybe some of the techniques that you used or the, the mental tools or even actual technical tools like computers right. in your teaching. Well, there was one phase just prior to that and that is I changed government departments. Right. <laughs> and this government department actually had a lot of worldwide expertise in microcomputers. Which one uh, was that? It was the like Department of Main Roads. Main Roads, yeah. And they uh, invented a system called SCATS. Called, I don't know if you've ever heard of no, that. No, Sydney yeah. Coordinated Adaptive Traffic System. Okay. And it used um, microcomputers on every uh, intersection, but they then linked them up in a hierarchy. So each region, the Hornsby region, would have its own mini computer. Mm -hmm. And then they had a VAX computer. Mm -hmm. So the whole of Put Sydney was actually part of a wide network. So we're going back to about 19, the early 1970s, and they were a world leader. So what does that system do? It coordinates. So and it coordinates when the lights will go green, amber? Well, what, what was interesting, is that, Sydney... Is that what it does? Well, it compensated for the lack of planning in Sydney. Well, the streets used to follow the old bullet <laughs> trains. <laughs> yeah. And um, so you have terrible... Uh, topography in Sydney yeah. and to compensate for that. So where there's a need, uh, people will invent something. Mm -hmm. So we invented a coordinated traffic system that gave priority to the main flow mm. okay. and tried to um, use the uh, image of an armly platoon. So package the whole of the traffic into platoons, oh, right. then synchronise them right. and then make that adaptive so that if there was a change in events, the system would be able to learn that, and then so it wasn't a time share, it wasn't a time uh, switch system. Yeah. It was a system based on measurement mm -hmm. of where the traffic was, and deliberately trying to flow to, to push it through to the push system. them through, right. and then coordinate the different platoons. Now, what was interesting about that? The whole thing was done in Sydney, and it was exported. So it was using mm -hmm. microcomputer technology. So if you go to Hong Kong, Shanghai, almost every city in uh, Asia 
they used the technology that we uh, developed Australia. in Sydney. Yeah. And most of Australia, except Brisbane, they wanted to do their own. Of course, but what was interesting point. about that is that I got involved in a basic micro technology, yeah. including this ALF machine and materials testing. Uh, you could do it all yourself. So you could design your own computers. How big was the team that developed that system back then? For the SCAT oh, system? Yeah, the SCAT system. Oh, there'd be a team of about, say, uh, 15 people. So it's quite a significant yeah. operation. So yeah, it was a significant operation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they worked in Oxford Street. They're now, if you've heard of the Transport Management Centre in Sydney? Yep. Okay. The uh, core of that is the people that developed the traffic light mm. system. Oh. Okay. Which is now there. There used to be in Oxford Street in Sydney. Yep. And it's now in the Transport Management Centre. Is that now Technology Park? In Technology Park, yep. that's right, Australian Technology Park. AGP, yeah. so, so the interesting thing was uh, that we had hands-on and I kept on learning about um, te techniques, particularly from the SCAF people, and applied those, not the traffic management, but I applied their technology to building roads and selecting quality material. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so mm -hmm. that got me interested in applying for um, a higher promotion. And I went to UTS as the engineering manager in the School of Electrical Engineering. Uh, until when? That was 1988. 1988, and yeah. what time did you finish up at UTS? Uh, well, I, start, I started UTS in 1988 and yeah. stayed there about 10 years. Okay. Then I went back into the roads people again, to the RTA. Uh, before so that, um, I'm curious, why did you decide to go to academia? Because it seems to me like you were having a lot of fun <laughs> until the time. Like your projects are amazing and like tremendously interesting. What drew, uh, drew you to go to academia? Well, uh, UTS started a brand new degree, computer systems engineering, and they wanted someone with a pretty solid background in microcomputing to develop all the laboratories. Yeah. So they employed me um, as a support staff. So, um, but a great, I actually had to, uh, they had to create a new position, mm -hmm. which was the same as a senior lecturer. Very unusual mm -hmm. for a support staff person mm -hmm. to yep. get that high in those yep. days, but um, they had a lot of money. So uh, the Navy were building submarines yep. and UTS taught the Navy software engineering yeah. techniques. So they were getting money from industry. So Rockwell, that money was being thrown yeah, at them. Yeah. And my, uh, my uh, directive there, my uh, aim was to um, get that money and put it into a program, but it didn't last that long. So for about two or three years, once the labs were all established, the source of finance, you know, we were getting $100,000 a year uh, um, budgets for our computer systems engineering. So I had to uh, come up with um, a program with the academics that would um, keep students active in mm -hmm. computer engineering. And the model there was, let's imitate industry. Mm -hmm. Let's get um, industrial strength things. So that's where your background is coming in at this well, point. It was different in the sense that um, they went for things like um, VLSI mm -hmm. design tools and mentor graphics, a lot of things which really needed a team behind them, mm -hmm. but we didn't really have many people employed to actually keep them running. Yeah. So it was a, uh, there was a lot to learn. How could you keep a university, in a sense, connected to industry, using the same tools that they were using, mm -hmm. but at the same time, how do you do that in an academic environment? 
Yeah. Not easy. Yeah. That's look, a different situation. I'm curious about how in the f- first few years uh, in your association with UTS in that capacity, uh, did you come in contact? With, you were teaching, right? You were not just... No, uh, in uh, in the first two years, I was only doing a small amount of teaching. Right. So uh, Noel Carmody, for example, who did yeah. VLSI and real-time uh, systems, I helped him with um, some subjects. I gave... I started doing lectures in project management. So you started in your lectures then, that's your first contact yep. with students. Are they master students or undergraduate? Uh, undergrad students. So how do you, how, what was your, uh, I suppose your uh, experience with those students coming fresh from school in an undergraduate program in engineering? What were they like back then? It was their first time that they experienced project management, the the, the, uh, the theory of it. Mm. So they UTS was a bit different because mm-hmm. most of the students had some feel for industry, mm. and so their appetite was already whetted. Uh, if you were to do that elsewhere, I think it'd be quite difficult. So, so I was actually a UTS student yeah. right, right after your time. I landed in there two thousand and two. Okay, in yeah. where in, in electrical. engineering? In, um, electrical. So there was a program called a Bachelor's of Engineering Innovations. And so I select, and so that was meant to be half business, half engineering. Okay. With the view of creating little entrepreneurs that would go out and make things. Okay. And uh, yeah, so I did a lot of engineering subjects in uh, building too. Okay. And uh, so I got a real feel for, you know, what you left there. Yeah. In terms I- of the electrical side of things. So, so UTS was very strong on project management. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know if you ever came across Peter Lewis at all. Yes. So I assisted Peter Lewis. I moved more into the management side. All the money had uh, dried out. Yep. And it was also, the funny thing was, I actually, my involvement in maker culture dried up then. And it was partly the, the social context of it. Previously, I was actually uh, in working with, particularly in the roads area, working with electricians Mm. in a collaboration where they wanted to learn themselves Mm. and we actually worked very, very cooperatively. But at UTS, there was a a bit of antagonism amongst the support staff Mm. and you couldn't actually go into their domain too much. So there's a bit of separation and there was a lot of backstabbing with academics. Wow. So it was quite a a tense, tense environment. But at the same time, UTS were leaders in education innovation. So they actually introduced new techniques of of introducing students to engineering Mm -hmm. uh, by discovery, by hands-on, and by also they involved the um, literacy side Mm -hmm. to screen all the students had bad English. We had this subject called Engineering for Sustainability. Okay. And yep. that sounds like a very interesting subject. Like yep. You look at that on the course program, it's like, oh, we're going to create solutions to help the environment and to live sustainably. No, I was writing essays on, was it John Henderson? The, the guy who invented the clock for you know, navigation. And uh, yeah, it was just essay writing the whole time. Right. And it was sound very racist. What process? It was simply okay. to screen out all the ESLs. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I, I was involved in the first, in, in the um, program just before that, and it was called Engineering Practice and Engineering mm-hmm. Discovery. Interesting. But the ethos behind that was totally, totally different from what I experienced myself as an undergrad. Yes. Very exciting, 
And I uh, became very interested in that and, and did a post-grad course mm -hmm. on higher education, okay. on the fundamentals of how adults learn. And I, I really liked that. That was, that was something that I did, enjoyed. Did you, did you like teaching? Yeah, I loved it. So uh, did your teaching increase over the yeah, years? Yeah, it, it took. So I was doing less and less in engineering management, yeah. and the academic side began to increase quite a lot. So tell us about your, like, the core of your teaching years at UTS. Tell us about the students. You know, were they practical kind of people, especially in the engineering school? Did, did they understand the concept of learning through making? Um, did, did they collaborate with each other and with you to build things? A bit of both. There was one subject that I got involved in called Introduction to Electrical Engineering. Mm -hmm. And um, I got involved in that. And that was about you had the students had to make hands-on. Yeah. So were they project-based learning? Yeah. Did you do that? I did that subject. Oh, so that was, I was one of the facilitators. Okay, we had to make a data acquisition device. Okay. So. Did you have to make, uh, did you choose to make the device? No, or was it an allocated topic or the, did you have They the, gave us the design yep. that we yep. had to follow. And this was all pre-Arduino. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, we're plugging in with you know, parallel ports and what, what have you. It would be so much easier to do today what we did back then today yes of course no what was interesting all the facilitators they weren't lecturers they were mm -hmm. facilitators to try and motivate and um, give feedback to students they had to go and do the construction too mm -hmm. and they you know, so we got involved quite actively a lot of it was team facilitation mm -hmm. so um you break when you were doing your subject uh, that uh, subject in introduction to uh electrical engineering there'd be a small team of students mm -hmm. with a facilitator yes about 15 or so yes we had a really good facilitator Carova. Yeah. Yeah, yeah she was one of my we worked together and david Blow was another one so yes. we actually worked together uh as and it met for the school it was a very expensive resource problem for them yeah. because for one subject you ended up with a, a team of perhaps about five or six so, uh facilitators mm -hmm. And um, it had its downside, and the downside was that it was more expensive. But, but from a student point, it, in your in your opinion, was it worth it? Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. Because you're able to get um, feedback, you're able to get to know the students, uh, and you. Well, got, what did the students get out of it? I think with a hands-on approach, and relating that back to um, reflective learning, mm -hmm. they were able to learn much more rapidly than the silo approach. Well, what do you mean by reflective learning, just to define that? Term. Oh, well, we introduced a technique where students had to um, spend the last 20 minutes of, the, of their session thinking about what they actually learned and whether the principles, what were the principles mm -hmm. and what they got out of it. Then they submitted that reflection to us. So we had a uh, conversation and we were able to talk about um, about any issues they had in that. So if you've got negative trends, you were able to sort of follow up on that. So I can imagine the student, did you go through this, Marcus? Uh -huh. You finish with your session, you plug in all your components together, you write your software, it works. Normally that's where you go home, right? <laughs> but in your case, you didn't. You had to reflect on it. What did I that cannot do? remember that idea, to be honest. <laughs> I feel Philip, we were... what do you think that did to students? Like mm -hmm. that, that reflection at the end of this hard session, I suppose. And you've got to think about it. 
Well, it, it was actually meant to start a, a process which was going to be a bit more than that. So while you were doing it there, it was hoping that um, when they were sleeping at night that night, or even the next couple Brainstorm. of days, the memory would still continue. And the learning process was um, not just terminated mm. at the end of the session, but would, con would continue. I th isn't that the purpose of a report? So a lot of other subjects, they get you to do a project and then write a report about it. Yep. So the report is not really so much to show your teacher or your supervisor that you actually did the work, but it's really for you. Mm -hmm. You're writing the report so that you can <laughs> remember and reflect on what you've done, especially you know, problems that you encountered, the process of solving those problems, other issues that you found um, extraordinary perhaps, you note them down. But in, in your case, in that uh, in, um, introduction to um, electrical engineering, it was more informal, right? Mm -hmm. You didn't have to write a report. You have to reflect on what you learned for the last 15 it, minutes of the session. In some ways, it was driven by formal mm -hmm. philosophy that reflective learning and those processes, we studied the psychology behind that. Mm. So we knew about that. We also knew that a lot of the students had problems with literacy. And when they did their, th the batch prior to you, mm -hmm. when they were doing their thesis presentations, a lot of them couldn't even uh, speak. speak. Yes. And they couldn't write. So we had to screen for those problems in communications as early as possible. Mm. Now, I think of my teaching career as well, because I spent 15 years in academia as well, and I, I know for a fact that, that formal report writing, especially for students whose language was not English as a first language, yep. was always a fear. It's, it's a, big, a big fear that they had, and yep. all that acted negatively to that opportunity to reflect on what you learned. Yep. And I suppose by not having to write a formal document on what you learned, but to take the opportunity to reflect by discussing or thinking or explaining to your supervisor, to your, to your friends or fellow students, uh, it removes that fear. Yep. It makes it informal. You retain all the positive aspects of this reflection, Yes. remove all the negative aspects. And what was a little bit different about that, we encouraged them to tell us how they felt about the process. Mm. So if they didn't like it, or if there was something that they didn't understand, they could actually put that in the report. There's the opportunity. So uh, rather than pretending it was a completely objective scientific report, mm. we were trying to get away from them copying. Mm. And it was their own work. I think I lacked the self-awareness to understand that that was what was really going on back then. I just viewed it as more work. Yes. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So Phil, uh, Mindful of our time, there's, there's a couple of questions I'd like to ask just yep. to drill into your philosophy side of things, not so much the, the practical engineering aspects. In the time that you were teaching engineering at university, what were the biggest challenges that you saw students having to face in order to learn especially difficult concepts in engineering? Oh, well, I think there was quite a number of them. You know, one definitely was um, the language. We're getting more and more students mm. from uh, China and from Asia where uh, English was their second language. Oh, absolutely. I had classes where I was the only white guy. Like, think about that. That's crazy. Yeah. So, so there was a language barrier? There was a language barrier. And also, we were getting a lot. It wasn't just with the students. We were getting a lot of um, lecturers that were mm. coming from 
all over the place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was difficult for the students to understand what the lecturers were saying. I never had that at UTS. Yeah. I had it on one occasion at uh, Sydney Uni. Okay, yep. Where he actually just broke out into Chinese because the rest of the class. <laughs> well, that's, I suppose it's the price to pay in a multicultural environment. Yeah, right. Everybody's got a weird access, yeah. accent. Um, but apart from those barriers, there, I suppose that, that there are things that you can do about, like if the language was not a problem and the barrier then was difficult concepts, how would you go about as a teacher, how would you go about helping a student just overcome those difficulties in understanding difficult concepts? Uh, well, in, in the communication side, yeah, you'd for, we formed a liaison with um, other academics in other schools. So there was a, a group of um, academics that would specialise just on improving English communications. Right. So you'd be able to select those students and they could be streamed into further support oh, right, right. In, in language. To help them to speak help them, and understand right. better English. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And that was more strategic. So uh, what you wanted by the end of that, um, say, session, that the students would realise themselves that um, they had to uh, invest extra mm. time mm. in learning the language. Yeah. Well, uh, beyond that, I just, from my own memory as a student in engineering, Almost every time there was a new concept that I had to learn, mm-hmm. I would stumble across difficult concepts. So, mm-hmm. I know, mag- electromagnetism and um, all the different equations that describe it. And mentally, I wasn't ready back then when I was 20 years old to understand some of those difficult, especially mathematical concepts. And then what would I do about it? Uh, not much. I, w- I would struggle. I would try to find another textbook, perhaps. Maybe if I was lucky, I would be able to corner one of the lecturers <laughs> and, and they would try to explain it. Usually I wouldn't be able to understand anyway. Um, so that, there was a lot of struggle there. And I think with degrees like that uh, mm-hmm. in engineering, in medicine, in, in science in general, there are difficult concepts that students struggle with. Did you have a, a particular technique to help out your students who were stuck with a particular difficult concept? I think doing it yourself, making sure, a lot, some of the very busy academics really didn't get too much involved in hands-on. Mm. But if you were able to do it yourself and you knew what was going on, then the students had more confidence and they could talk to you. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, I noticed uh, that we had some facilitators, uh, PhD students mm. and others, that had difficulty understanding how a transistor worked. Yes, yes. And when students, <laughs> students were asking them, it was quite clear they were giving them the wrong advice. So the instructors, so the, the, the teachers, I should say, they were themselves having trouble understanding a concept, like how does a transistor work? Yep, and yes. then we had a mixture. <laughs> we had a mixture. Because UTS, one of the problems of UTS, it came from a, an advanced college of education mm-hmm. that um, had a focus on learning and quality mm-hmm. learning. Mm-hmm. Then it suddenly had to pick up research and uh, getting money from industry. So academics were pretty busy if they had to do all those things. You, you couldn't do them yeah. all perfectly. Yeah. And so you had some of the senior people, uh, professors and things like that, you know, they would perhaps ill-prepared go in and the students, when they asked questions, it was obvious that they weren't getting the right um, support. Yeah, so I was not the only one. <laughs> I did not feel that. Uh, the ideas that 
Now, um, I think UTS was a bit different from Sydney Uni too, in that um, the students would often rush in from work. From yes, and they oh, absolutely. I had half an hour to get from work to UTS. Yep. Yes, yeah. uh, it was a rush. Well, at Sydney Uni, the lunchtime sessions, you would go and listen to a visiting professor from Harvard or something like that. Mm. UTS didn't have anything like that at all, nothing. And at Sydney Uni, what was more important to me wasn't the lectures, was the access mm. to um, the whole university environment mm. and joining clubs, you know, uh, political groups and... Uh, other groups like that, of bushwalking so clubs. Traditional academic environment uh, at, at Sydney University. It's more more traditional, yeah. uh, but it also um, had a lot more exposure in terms of um, particularly politics. Mm. So the, the Vietnam, well, I was involved with the uh, demonstrations against the Vietnam War on, on the campus mm. and the philosophy students they were quite active in this. Whereas so uh, philosophy, UTS didn't have one. Yeah, there was a completely different environment. UTS. And I, to me, I thought, well, education to be more rounded, it would be good to have a little bit of that. Yeah, they had the engineering society and the IT mm. societies. Mm. But I can't remember any yeah, political societies. Yeah, but well, there was no campus-wide participate. You tend to be in silos. Yeah. Mm. I think the tower building doesn't help either. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it became a crisis. <laughs> silos. <laughs> but they actually at one stage said, let's have no more schools. Mm. And they then said, we'll go into a, a matrix structure. Okay. And the matrix structure meant yeah. you could come out of um, engineering, electrical engineering, and you could go into two groups. I picked environmental engineering. And what was the other one? Professional, uh, the area of management, computer. Oh, not computer, just engineering management. Mm -hmm. But um, you could actually choose them. <laughs> did, did that actually work? Because I know that the matrix uh, structure, organizational structure became popular in the early 2000s and yep. a few other universities yep. decided to follow them like UWS. Yeah. But uh, did anything come out of it? Did things improve? Well, I, I was just looking up a colleague of mine at UTS, uh, Ravin Bagia. Yeah. And I noticed that he's the deputy head of school. So the thing that we've gravitated back to the school structure. And that's how it is now. <laughs> yeah. But it was, uh, when I left U UTS, it went to a group structure. But it was sort of interesting. I was interested in the environmental engineering, yeah. but only two people other than the professor bothered joining the group. Oh, so yeah. it died out. Interesting. I think in large, I don't know, that's, that's another thing that we can learn through experiment, but it seems like in large organizations, structures have to be clear in order for them to be rigid and successful. And uh, the matrix system didn't seem to have that clarity to yep. do a report now. And uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, how about we go into rapid fire questions? Rapid fire questions. Yes. The, so rapid fire questions are short questions. Mm -hmm. You can take your time to answer them. It's not a, it's not a race. <laughs> it's just we'll try to keep it short in order to focus the conversation. So, sure. um, did you want to go first, Marcus? Sure. Yeah. So, Phil, who has been the most influential in shaping the way you teach? A person that was in direct contact with you, perhaps, or a historical person, or an author, somebody yep. whose work influenced you as an educator. Well, from, from UTS, uh, Elizabeth Taylor. I yep. mentioned her earlier yep. tonight. She was a, a lecturer. Mm -hmm. And uh, she... Not, not the actor. 
not the actor. Yeah. No. <laughs> she was a civil engineer and she was employed in the School of Electrical Engineering, mm -hmm. which was a bit unusual. And um, she looked after the context of engineering in the wider areas, the connections between engineering and society, mm -hmm. and um, putting engineering out of the laboratory in, in context. Mm -hmm. So it was quite... Uh, How did that influence you? In a well, in the teach, she was uh, the subjects that led on to sustainability. Mm -hmm. She was the, uh, the spearhead in all of that. Okay. So uh, particularly the academic program. So um, she got groups of academics to talk to each other. So you would actually... So she fostered collaboration and communication. There was a right? collaboration. Yeah. And we would also go to... Um, uh, conventions mm. in education where the other lecturers would talk about the so latest not, ideas not, and not in engineering but conventions in education, in education. how to teach better that's right, right how to teach better so we would go to those yeah. and um, we were very innovative mm. in the way that we were going about that yeah uh, and so, so she influenced the way that the subjects would operate as well like how marks would be allocated to what kind of projects the students would undertake um, how assessments would run. So did you see her influence into the practical aspect of how classes and education was actually run at GTS or at yeah. the department? Yeah, right through to making sure that um, the, the course was well documented. You had a curricula and it was still flexible yeah, mm. and you went in for flexible mm. learning. Mm. So we, we actually have things like learning contracts I don't know if you've ever yes. come across those. I did those in UTS, yes. Uh, I think the students had to sign familiar. the contracts, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and part of that was to try and take the power away from the academic and share that power with the student. So she got involved in looking at education from a different point of view. We, we were facilitators. We, we weren't allowed to be called lecturers. Yes. So in some ways our role changed. And I think it was quite exciting this whole idea of team involvement was very, very interesting. Mm. And you, you did it. You didn't even know you were working hard. You actually yeah. enjoyed it. So it, it sounds very much like maker-style education. Because <laughs> <laughs> the, the team-based and uh, mentorships uh, instead of lectureships and all that sounds very familiar to me. So uh, Elizabeth Taylor, she's going to be in the notes. I've mm -hmm. um, got another one. Um, let's say that you've got uh, a young educator just starting out. Now, what advice would you give them? It depends on their background. I think we have learning styles which are different. So uh, while I've spent a lot of time in higher education, postgrad, undergrad, I've also spent time with people who've got disabilities. Yep. So it sort of depends on inclusion and what that person is capable of doing. Mm -hmm. So I'm really keen on that because rather than keeping people isolated and they're not part of the mainstream, I think everyone's capable of mm. fulfilling their um, uh, their goals as long as they've um, given the right guidance. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so do you think that the educator would needs to be confident to operate as a guide, perhaps, to help their students find their own goals? I think it's different. Some students will just come in, and um, they already know the subject. They might mm. even know it better than you. Mm. So. Uh, they're going to be in the minority, but you're going to have a whole spectrum. I don't think you should treat the whole block of students all the same. Everybody's different. They're all different. There's so going to be advice needs. for the new educator that just remember 
everybody in front of you is a different person. Yes. You can't treat them all as the same and yep. the one, right? So and that's they're going to have their, They're going to have their preferred method of learning. Yeah. Now, some are going to be good. I, I'll play around. I'll make my own stuff. And that'll mo motivate me to go and find mm. out from the theory of why it works. Mm. But you'll have others that just prefer to um, learn from the textbook. So you have to adjust to the student, not the other way around. I think both. I think it's a conversation. Yep. I think so that both, both parties need to be flexible. Yeah. But you think that the educator has a bit more responsibility since they are the, the mature party in the relationship Well, I, I, to I teach think, flexibility to the student? I think there's an, the facilitator's got the advantage that they see the relevance of that mm. and um, they can give guidance where there may be too much time spent on a particular area. Yeah. So they can give weight to uh, the different parts of the curricula. Yeah. Yeah. So they can give guidance and support. Right. So given the time, I'm going to go straight to any parting thoughts for our listeners, do's, don'ts, and things to look out when teaching technical subjects. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think one thing is um, make sure the education and the learning is lifelong. Mm -hmm. mm. And from a very early age, and I started off at nine building stuff, start as early as you can. Okay. So I think that's important. And make it something that you have fun with. So while there are methods to assess the learning, mm -hmm. there's also a process there where you can really like it. So I think that's important too, that you maintain that interest right throughout life. So uh, while they finish the subject, and they're good at it, then that shouldn't be the end of it. Now, an example of that is, I found it really difficult to find engineers that could draw, and yet in school, they um, only encourage drawing in the early yeah. phases of yeah. school. And I noticed that we went to the last session, mm -hmm. and the same thing happened with coding. They were saying, let's get away from the visual side, because that's the primitive side. Mm -hmm. and and will move towards more of a, a syntax and a um, more of a line-by-line, line, yeah. a verbal description of coding. Mm -hmm. And to me, there may be people that like to do both. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, if you're going to encourage creativity, you don't suppress something, it's bring in something else. You look at um, the blending yeah. of what people have done. Uh, so I, I think that um, maintain the skills, maintain that right throughout the, uh, the learning process uh, rather than letting them die. Learning never ends. Um, as long as you're alive, <laughs> you learn. Yeah, and but also... Do it uh, consciously, right? And, and also doing the whole process of that is a problem at the moment where um, schools perhaps go more into the coding and neglecting the... Uh, the mechanical side of it, or yeah, putting putting that together. Certainly, we're seeing lots of schools jumping headfirst into Python. Yep, mm. and uh, there's, I'd say, I don't know to call it, call it the minority, but there's far less schools actually doing the the breadboarding side of things. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if oh, look, we've got our makey makeys, we've got our little bits, we've ticked the boxes. Yes, and away we go. Yeah, it's, that's not real learning, right? It's just ticking the boxes. Well. Well, one, one of the things that I was quite weak at was mechanical engineering mm -hmm. because I tended to concentrate on the, and becoming more and more specialised uh, right through to computer systems. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I had to actually 
and this is only just recently, I had to go and find out the right screws for my robot. Mm-hmm. And yet, in the past, I would have said to a mechanical engineer, well, what do I need? Will you do mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. And yet, really, if you actually, you should be involved in the whole process. Mm-hmm. One of the good things about um, UTS was they encouraged a style of engineering called systems engineering, mm-hmm. and they taught that formally, yep. whereas it didn't exist anywhere else. Yep. And it, what it meant was you looked at the broader the holistic picture. picture, and I think that was pretty good. But at the same time, you really need to make sure that those skills are, are followed through and that the engineering that you do, you take an interest outside of your um, narrow discipline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the nice thing about systems engineering. It really forces you to think about uh, outside your specialization, how things and the components that make up something interact. Yeah. Great. I think we are going to leave it at this. We still have so much to ask, especially uh, in your experience in teaching children with disabilities. So I'd like to touch on that topic in our next (laughs) chat. But for now, do you like people getting in touch with you? (laughs) What's the best way if somebody wants to talk to you and ask questions about anything that we discuss, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Well, probably Facebook contact. Facebook, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I can give you the Facebook address later on. Yes, I'm going to have that information in the show notes Mm -hmm. uh, later. So, Philip, thank you very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this episode. If you have any questions or suggestions, please send them to our email address, questions at stemiverse.com, and we'd be happy to answer them. Do you want us to interview someone in particular? Let us know. Visit us at stemiverse.com to get the show notes of every episode. And subscribe on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, Stemiverse. That is S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.